So Money, episode 453, Dr. Daniel Crosby. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thank you for joining me. We're covering a subject matter that's very exciting to me. I wrote a book called Psych Yourself Rich back in 2010, and it was really about behavioral finance and how, as humans, we're not exactly, quote unquote, rational when it comes to things like investing and saving and being smart with our money. And so I wanted to explore why. And since then, I've been really interested in new studies and new ideas around this. And our guest today is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who's got some new answers and some new research for us. His name is Dr. Daniel Crosby. He's the author of a new book, came out earlier this summer called The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. It's a fun book, if I dare say. You know, sometimes books at this high level written by PhDs can be, well, let's be honest, a snooze fest. But this book does a really excellent job of making it accessible to readers, giving service and great takeaways for us to really learn how to be better at managing our own money and investing. He gives readers real and actionable guidance for investors like forecasting is for weathermen. And if you're excited, it's probably a bad idea. (laughs) So it's funny too. Daniel also co-authored a New York Times bestseller before this one called Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. And so Daniel and I, we talk about how as humans, how can we begin to think more rationally when it comes to investing? It's not like we're born knowing how to do this, so help me out here. And then earning versus saving as human beings, which are we more capable of doing? You might be surprised. Here's Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Daniel Crosby, welcome to So Money. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. Congrats on your new book, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. This is one of my favorite topics. And actually, I was poking through your book. I have it in front of me here. And uh, rule number three is trouble is opportunity, which is awesome. I think Warren Buffett would also agree that, you know, when every, when the sky is falling, that's when you're supposed to be keeping your focus sharp and trying to find some opportunities. Would you say right now with so much uncertainty right now with the upcoming election and what's happening overseas and ongoing geopolitical concerns that maybe now is actually a good time to invest um, more than others. How would you characterize our current markets right now and how we should be behaving? Yeah, well, it's it's a little bit tricky because, you know, another one of the chapters talks about the power of diversification. And I think you see that right now, because uh, right now, the U.S. equity market is actually enormously expensive. The, the broad market is. Um, but European markets are actually quite cheap. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think people that are broadly diversified are going to have a fine run of it. But I think the U.S. in the medium term will probably not do very well um, if, if history is any... Uh, any indication. So I think it speaks to the importance of, of being diversified and really going where there's blood in the streets. I mean, if you look at where the real turmoil is right now, um, it, it's in Europe and prices are cheap accordingly. 
It's interesting, though, in the U.S., we've had this sense for a long time uh, that we're not very optimistic, but in a very sneaky sort of uh, in a very stealthy way. U.S. equity markets have actually crept up to quite high valuation levels over the past seven years, and and no one's really noticed because it hasn't felt all that exuberant, frankly. No, it hasn't. And um, one of the great things about your book is that while you lay a lot of these principles down, you also give a lot of action in the book. So every chapter ends with a, okay, thanks for this information, Dr. Crosby. What now? <laughs> you know, it's like one thing to kind of explain theories to people, and but people really want takeaways. So did you find that when you were doing your research for your book, that that was something that was missing from a lot of books that were, at, you know, it's a very high level book. You, you approach this from a very academic perspective, but also a lot of experience too. Did you think that there really isn't, aren't a lot of books out there that give you actionable advice when it comes to behavioral psychology and behavioral finance? That, that is what I thought. And I really have my editor to, to thank for that because he's the one that really pushed me towards greater concreteness and greater applicability. Uh, that's not naturally where my head goes. I mean, as a PhD, as an academician, I think most of us that go that route uh, sort of have our head in the clouds and can tend to be a little ivy, ivory tower. And as a result, a lot of the books out there, and many of them are, are, are fabulous and have really shaped the way that people think about investment management, uh, for, for all they did well, they weren't all that applicable. So my, uh, I think the, the, the crowning glory of this book, if there is one, is that you can actually take these things and it'll give you steps for applying them. Because really, at the end of the day, um, these ideas are only as good as your application of them. Do you think that as human beings, we are actually capable and look, the, the problem is, is that, and I'm sure you know this, is that we're not exactly hardwired to make rational, quote unquote, rational choices when it comes to the stock market and investing. We're very emotional beings. And so what's your best advice there? Because to get over those emotional barriers that we have and those impulses, because we're not born with equipped with the know-how or the the wherewithal. Yeah, so I make the case in the books. I, I introduced this paradox early on that says there's there's two incompatible things at work here. The first is you absolutely have to invest in risk assets if you're going to survive. And I mean, I sort of do the math to show, hey, even someone with a very nice salary, if they're not compounding their wealth at a decent clip, you're just not going to make it. I mean, we're we're living at a time now when today. Uh, the average retiree spends a quarter of a million dollars in retirement on medical bills above and beyond what their insurance covers. I mean, it's just enormously expensive uh, to live as long as we are now. Uh, and our medicine has sort of outpaced uh, our investment acumen and what the markets have given us. So I say, you know, on the one hand, you have to do this. But on the other hand, as you point out, we're very, very poorly equipped for this. I mean, sort of the, the, the apparatus that we come to earth with just makes us very poor investors. It makes us emotional and short-sighted and greedy and fearful and everything you, you don't need to really make the most of, of investing in capital markets. And so I think if, if we're just going to be simple and give one piece of advice here, one thing I talk about in the book is just automating these things at every turn, just really automating uh, the processes by which you, you you go about investing, because there's a study that I love to talk about that I cite in the book that's a meta-analysis, which is a, a fancy word for the study of all the studies. 
So a meta-analysis of, of human decision-making and human discretion versus just following rules. And it shows that following simple laws or simple rules beats PhD-level human discretion, beats or equals at 94% of the time, and uh, certainly does so at much uh, a much lower cost. So I think most investors uh, should just absolutely automate the process by which they go about this to avoid all the all the uh, messy humanity that comes along with mm-hmm. it. I totally agree. At the same time, it's important to still have a relationship with your money. And critics would say, well, if you automate everything, you create distance, you, you lose touch. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, another another thing that I tried to do in the book here is so much of, of what's been talked about with respect to behavioral finance has been sort of the myriad ways in which we're flawed and silly and stupid and irrational. And I wanted to say, hey, there's there's ways to take the messiness of being a human being and flip it on its head a bit so that you can actually use that to your advantage. So one one study I talk about in the book talks about what's called goals-based investing or just benchmarking to the things that are important to you, to your personal meaning and purpose, rather than trying to outpace the S&P 500, say. And it talks about this one study where um, low-income savers were, were, were trying everything they could to set aside more money. And the, the folks that were studying these uh, low-income savers tried rewards and they tried punishments and everything that they could think of. And then finally, the only thing that worked was priming them with a picture of their children. So before the uh, before they would make a decision about whether to save or spend their money, they were asked to ruminate on their children and look at a picture of their children. And when they did something as simple as that, they saved more than 200% as much as they had been previously. Yeah. So I think there's a way to introduce life into this process in a way that makes it less sterile and, and actually gets you moving in the right direction. I don't say it as nicely as you do and with as much research, but I have this sense that when we start to think of money as less about numbers and graphs and charts, which like you said, can feel very stoic, but to think about your goals, think about who is important to you, what is important to you, what do you want to achieve? All of that stuff carries price tags. And so trying to first identify the goals, then reverse engineering it with financial strategy, I think is a much more, it's a more exciting way to go about life. And it's like you say, can ultimately lead to more success with your, with your finances. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons people have uh, such a hard time investing and saving is because you're basically saying no. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a moment of self deprivation for a hoped for future outcome. And that's nothing that we do well is trade off the certain pleasure of the moment for a, a a hoped for pleasure in the distant future. And, you know, (laughs) call us um, crazy, call us irrational. Yeah. 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 And the only way you can do that is, is by having a yes, that's bigger than that immediate no. And so for most people, that's uh, the only thing that's bigger than that pain of the moment is something really important or some, someone that they really love. What's your take on this debate right now, which I'm on the, I'm on the earning side of the debate, but earning versus saving, which is more effective if we do have this adverse reaction to saving because who wants to save? Do you advocate for focusing, refocusing on how to earn more instead? Are we better at that as humans? Oh, goodness. I, it seems like a little bit of a false dichotomy to me. You know, I try and, I try and maximize both and I see them as going sort of hand in hand. I think, you know, to your point, 
something that people don't appreciate is how much investing in their their own human capital can can help them uh, earn a, an appropriate living. You know, reading books, getting a degree, making connections, building those relationships. I mean, these are going to be huge predictors of of how you do financially over your lifetime. Uh, but I think saving and saving early is is a huge deal. I mean, compounding is just magical. There's 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 no two ways about it. So I think uh, those things go hand in hand, and I, I wouldn't begin to presume to say one's better than the other. But from a maybe from a behavioral standpoint, is one does one come to us more naturally, like to be able to work in exchange for currency as opposed to not spending that currency? Sure. So I think uh, in terms of what comes to us more naturally, um, I think we have a natural drive toward achievement. So maybe that takes the form of of earning more. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, there's nothing natural about the need to save. I mean, I'll be very direct about that. That's nothing that we do well. That's nothing um, that throughout the history of humankind, I mean, people have even needed to do well. I mean, life used to be nasty, brutish, and short, and you didn't need to plan for a 30 or 40 year retirement. So we're kind of uh, feeling our way in the dark here. But I will say there's something called the hedonic treadmill, which is a fancy word for saying as you earn more, you tend to spend more. Um, And as I sit here in my house, that's too big that I bought because I made more money, um, you know, that's that's kind of how that goes. We have a natural drive for for achievement, uh, but we have to make sure we don't have a commensurate rise in consumption or else it's no good. Right, right. Makes total sense. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from. The drag and drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. I want to learn more about you, Daniel. What kind of a childhood did you have that, you know, led you down this path of studying human psychology, behavioral psychology, finance so deeply. Did you have interest in this as a kid? Do you, th- do you think looking back, it, it all makes sense now? Oh, it all, it all makes a lot, lot of sense. So I, I'm the, the son of a financial advisor. Um, and so, you know, grew up absolutely steeped in these things. I remember getting a copy of The Richest Man in Babylon when I was like a little kid and my dad sort of lecturing me on these things. And in my household, the word debt was quite literally a four-letter word. We were not uh, we were not allowed to say the word debt uh, with the same degree of severity that we weren't allowed to say swear words. And I'm, I'm not joking about that. And so, um, yeah, I grew up in a, in a house where these things were very much top of mind. Um, began college uh, as a business major seeking to study investment management, then went on a mission for my church for a couple of years, spent 
spend a few years in the Philippines teaching English lessons and um, helping to strengthen local branches of, of my church and came back with a bigger heart perhaps than I left with. And so said, Hey, now I want to study psychology. I want to do good in the world. Um, and so uh, over time I've sort of blended, blended these two aspects of who I am into the weird, the weird hybrid that exists today. So I have to ask, why was debt such a terrible word? I mean, I think all families would agree they would like to raise kids, not praising debt, you know, that they would agree that your parents did a good job, but why was it such a specific point of education, you know, was there, did your parents go through a battle with their own finances? I, I think part of it, well, I think part of it was because they had, uh, at least my dad had grown up poor and it was sort of seen as an encumberment um, and, and a problem. I think uh, a big part of it, it's interesting, my dad has actually moderated his, uh, moderated his ideas about debt over time. And has encouraged us to not do some of the things he did. Like when I was growing up, I mean, we, I, I very specifically remember, you know, no family vacations, eating just gross food, <laughs> you know, while my parents were trying to pay off this house, they, you know, went, went after paying off the house very aggressively and did it at quite a young age, you know, I think before they were even 40 years old. Um, but our family, really kind of suffered uh, for this. And now, you know, now they have a, a whole lot of money uh, and they don't have that time back. So he's actually moderated his, his views on that and has sort of preaches something different to the grandchildren because it took such extremes in my, in my youth that I think we missed out on some things. What do you wish you had learned differently growing up and what kind of experiences do you wish you had as given that, you know, your parents were pretty frugal? Yeah, I think just I think just family time. I mean, we we spent a lot of time as a family, but just making memories outside of the home. I mean, I had a great childhood and we had a lot of fun at home, but we also ate a lot of tuna casserole. <laughs> so, I think just <laughs> you know, I think if we had just maybe uh, you know, loosened the belt a little bit and mm. you know, more trips, more trips to Disney, more more family vacations because I've made a point of taking my kids all over the country and the world. Because it's something as sort of a reaction to the way that I grew up, and you know now my now my mom's in poor health, and they they have all the money they need and don't have the opportunity. So that's something I've really tried to tried to learn, and something they encourage us to do differently. You've read the the studies, right? Money doesn't buy happiness, but there are some ways to appropriate your dollars that can increase happiness levels. Have you? Are you, do you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you share with us yeah. a little bit about maybe some of the best ways to spend our money to live happier lives? Are there ways? Yeah, so one of the, the ways are spending on relationships and experiences. Um, you know, people find that the uh, buying things has a short uh, a short burst of happiness. In particular, is a house, like a big house very quickly just becomes the backdrop against which your life plays out. And so very, very quickly, we become desensitized to even a very, a very nice house. So houses do an especially poor job of, of providing happiness. Once you get the bases covered and you have adequate space in a, you know, warm, dry place, um, it doesn't, doesn't do a whole lot. Experiences on the other hand, get better with age. And these tend to live in our memory Oftentimes, frankly, getting better over time, we forget about the kids whining about are we there yet and things and only the sort of rosier parts of that 
uh, recollection persists. So spending on developing relationships, making memories, having experiences are consistently better uh, than buying things. So that's good to know. No big house is ever going to make you happy because that's that's a pain in the butt, that big house. To the maintenance, the the breakdowns, the whatever. I mean, yeah, homeownership is not for the faint of heart. No, it's terrible. We we bought a big house about nine months ago, and it's the dumbest thing I've ever done. If I could, <laughs> if for I you could especially, un- right? As the man of the house, you're probably the one that, uh, yeah. The assumption is you're going to be able to fix everything. You can't. That is an assumption. My wife's much better <laughs> at those things than I am. There's always TaskRabbit. That's right. Um, tell us about a boo-boo, a financial mistake that you've made. And, you know, indulge us because we may think that someone with, you know, a PhD and writing a book called The Laws of Wealth has made no financial mistakes, but I'm sure there's something you might have learned the hard way. So in terms of a financial failure, there's something that materialized recently. So you know how I grew up, you knew uh, that we were very debt averse in my household. And that's taken the form of me really not having a credit card until very recently. We pay cash for all our cars. I have no student loan debt or anything like that. And so uh, we, we run a cash only operation more or less. Well, when we went to move from Alabama, where I'm from, to recently we moved to Atlanta, uh, we went to check our credit scores in order to get a mortgage and, and assumed that everything was going to be, uh, you know, in excellent shape, just given the way that we live our financial lives. Well, when we looked at our credit score, my wife had excellent credit. Uh, because the the small bit of credit we do have is in her name. She does all of our ha- household finances, and her credit was excellent. Uh, any credit we had, we paid off every every month, and it was all in her name. Uh, in my name, on the other hand, there was basically no credit history to speak of, except it turns out when I moved offices um, a, a few years ago, actually, I, I didn't I didn't know about a final Verizon phone bill that I had due. A $200 bill that I had failed to pay, hadn't left a forwarding address, so it got sent to collections. And so on my credit, I had almost no credit history and this sort of uh, this black mark of this having been sent to collections. And so my credit was very poor. Well, when we're going to get the house, uh, my wife stays at home with our children, so she has no income. I have good income, bad credit. She has good credit, no income. And so we actually had to put down nearly a 50% down payment uh, to secure the house we moved oh, into. So All yeah. because of a utility bill that goes into collections. Yep, $200 bill that of course I paid as soon as I as soon as I oh found out gosh. about it. I paid it paid it assuming that all would be well with my credit now and apparently that's not the case. So <sighs> Man, that, you know, we hear a lot of credit tragedies, like stories about, you know, I have my student loans or I went defaulted on my mortgage. But this was, this seems like so innocent. In in hindsight, do you think there was anything else you could have done? Like, could there have been a way to write a letter, have like a credit bureau write a letter and say, hey, like this isn't, you know, an unusual score because, and this guy has perfect credit, but it was just like, you know, one, one bad thing led to another. He never got the bill, et cetera. I mean, there has to be a way to work around stuff like that. There, there has to be. There has to be. And you know what's funny is I was actually scolded by my uh, the, the guy who did our mortgage because I had paid it off. You know, as soon as, soon as I as soon as I learned of this thing, I'm like, oh no, Verizon! I'm I'm sorry, I stiffed you for two hundred bucks. Here you go. Wrote them a check, and so then it's gone. 
But actually, I, I, he told me after the fact that you really want to try and dangle that 200 bucks. You want to say, hey, uh, we'll write a letter. Can you do something for us and use it as almost a, a bargaining chip? Because, mm-hmm. because I had sort of taken myself out of the equation so quickly by paying it promptly, well, promptly once I knew about it, right. um, I actually did, did damage. So yeah, it seemed fluky to me, but, um, you know, all of, we had to get all of our, you know, we got a credit card. It's in both of our names now and lesson learned, I guess. Lesson learned. And Hey, maybe, you know, it's great that you have all this equity <laughs> in your home as yes. one way to ride out a tumultuous market. If there ever is one again. Yeah, there will, there will be, <laughs> there will be. Okay. Tell me everything. What's your crystal ball uh, telling you? Actually, that's a good question, right? I mean, do you have, a, I know that one of your laws is like forecasting is for idiots or something like that, but, uh, right. Am I, am I, am I thinking right? For, for, forecasting is for weathermen. I was a little what? more genteel. Yeah. <laughs> idiots, weathermen, um, same, <laughs> same idea, I guess. But well, is there a way for us to kind of see the future and, and work accordingly? Or is, is, is the advice just don't worry about the future, do what you can control? Well, there's two, you know, two of the laws of wealth that I talk about in the book or one is for forecasting is for weather people. And then the the very next chapter is that excess is never permanent. And so it's a it's a bit of a tough thing. So uh, on the one hand, David Dreamin, this sort of fabulous value investor, looked at all the consensus forecasts over the last hundred years or so. And it was like 80,000 forecasts he looked at. And he found that one time in 170 uh, were the consensus forecasts within 5% of the eventual reality. So just, just horrible. I mean, like, you know, worse than worse than throwing darts, basically. But then on the other hand, we know that excess is never permanent. And we know that we're looking at right now, one of the most expensive American stock markets in in the history of the US. I mean, we're talking probably number four most expensive, with the other three being, you know, 1929, 2000 and 2007. And so, um, yeah, yeah, we, we don't know when, but we know at some point those excesses will get worked out of the market. And the, the hard part is knowing when, and that's sort of the unknowable part, which is why you just have to stick to your discipline, uh, dollar cost average, diversify, and ride out those storms. Mm-hmm. Not make any knee-jerk reactions. In some ways, you know, if you are a young investor with a long investment horizon, I would look forward to that in some ways, only because that's an opportunity to strike. And if you have some cash on the sidelines to put them, put your cash to work. I know when uh, news of Brexit broke, everybody was like, oh my God, the world is ending. And you can definitely look at it that way. But I think it's from a investment strategy perspective, I was thinking this is the day that I'm going to go in and maybe buy some more shares in my portfolio or just like invest more in my, in my index funds. Yeah, we, we've had, we've had such an easy ride for, for many of the last seven years, for at least five of the last seven years, it's been kind of straight up. And so we forget the average inter, intra-year drawdown over the past 35 years has been 14%. Hmm. So, I mean, we get a market correction basically every year. And so volatility is the norm and not the exception. And people need to be reminded of that. Volatility is the norm, not the exception. What's another philosophy that you live by? Oh, my goodness. My, the philosophy that I live by is trying to put first things first. For me, um, money is, is freedom. And it's a, uh, it's a way for me to say no to people. <laughs> And uh, I spend more time with my family. So I really try and put first things first. And even though I'm immersed in the study of money and the, so the psychology of money, 
uh, all it does is buy me time with the people that I love. And it, when, when it starts to become more, more than that, that's a problem. Mm. Tell us about one of your number one money habits, Daniel. What's something that you do consciously and regularly to make sure that your money is you know, where it needs to be? Yeah. So my, my number one money habit, all it's actually chapter two of the book, is I say you can't do this alone. So one of the things that I do that surprises a lot of people is that I work with an investment advisor. So I'm, a, I'm an investment advisor myself. I write books on this stuff. I talk about it all the time. And, and yet, why do I still work with somebody who, who I pay to oversee my money? And the reason that I do this is because I understand that I'm just as irrational and stupid and scared and greedy as the, as the next person. And so in the book, I talk about people who work with an advisor uh, tend to outperform those who do it themselves by 2 to 3% per year. And the, the compounding of 2 to 3% per year is pretty dramatic over an investment lifetime. So there's a lot of talk, I think, in sort of the blogosphere about the, the expenses associated with advice. But I think if you get someone good, um, they can save you from yourself. And, and that's the biggest value that an advisor has. Yes. So prerequisite for my financial advisor, you need to save me from myself. That's a good, Absolutely. Uh, that's a good thing to put on your, um, your application. Dr. Daniel Crosby, thank you so much. Before we let you go, you got to finish this sentence for us. I'm so money because... I'm so money because my, my wife and I will be welcoming our third child in just two days. Oh my goodness. Well, congratulations. What a, what a big time for your family and we wish you all the best. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Daniel Crosby, his website is Nocturne Capital, and he's on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. All this information is back at SoMoneyPodcast.com. If you missed any of this episode, the audio is there, the transcripts are there. You can also leave a comment. And if you've got a question for me for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh, just hit me up on SoMoneyPodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, drop me your question, and boom, we're connected. Thanks so much for tuning, everyone, and I hope your day is so money.